0: The year was 1967 when Scottsdale Bible Church hired its very first youth pastor, Cheryl Babb. For three years, Cheryl served on SBC staff supporting the ministry of Dr. Jim Bohr, Scottsdale Bible's first senior pastor. When Dr. Bohr resigned in 1969, the leadership of SBC felt led by God to promote Cheryl Babb to be our second senior pastor, a position he would hold for two years. In 1971, Cheryl and his family answered God's call to return to college and complete his education, which he did, earning a doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Babb was only 39 years old when he became president of the non-denominational Christian college, Philadelphia College of the Bible. Under Dr. Babb's leadership, the college grew from being a small 475-student campus to what is now known as Philadelphia Biblical University, with six campuses and 1,800 students from every state in the U.S. and more than 100 countries around the world. Not only is Dr. Babb the longest-serving president in the 100-year history of Philadelphia Biblical University, he's also the university's first chancellor and continues to serve in that capacity today. Under Dr. Babb's leadership, Philadelphia Biblical University has always remained committed to excellence in biblical higher education.
1: He was our pastor for a few years. He's back here today. Would you welcome with me Dr. Cheryl Babb? Thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Scottsdale Bible Church. Your gracious invitation to come back to help celebrate with you is just really overwhelming. You are a real blessing to us uh, today, and you've always been that way since we came back in the late 60s, but that we've kept contact with various people in the church, and we are so excited about the present leadership. Jamie, wow, what a pastor. Let's, let's give Jamie a big hand. I call this ubiquitous Bible church. Ubiquitous everywhere. Obviously it had a meager beginning, 13 people. Here it is, is, six, 7,000 here, but other sites. And in the second and third generation of men and women who are serving Christ around the world. God has a great future for Scottsdale Bible Church, the ubiquitous Bible Church. In Revelation chapter 2, I'd like for you to take your Bibles. There may be one in front of you if you didn't bring one with you. Or you can read on the screen uh, in front of you. I'd like to just look at this passage of Scripture first. Beginning in verse 12, notice what it says. And the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. food sacrificed to idols, and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we just bow before the word of God, seeking your guidance and direction through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Give us an understanding of it Lord, by your power, give us the courage to obey it. And we pray these things to the name of our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I look at this passage, I think that there are at least three significant things that Christians knew that the Lord knew about them in this passage. Three things about those believers at the Church of Pergamum. Number one, Jesus Christ knew where they lived. Jesus Christ, secondly, knew who they were. And thirdly, Jesus Christ knew the way they lived their lives. Now when I see that, That's what I call a stop dead in your tracks decision. Stop dead in your tracks. Why? Because we have a God who understands us. He knows where we live. He knows we're here this morning. He knows when we're not here this morning. He knows who we are concerning our faith and trust in Him. He knows us also the way we live our everyday lives. That's stop dead in your tracks. Number one, it can be a stop dead in your tracks comfort to realize that no matter what are my problems, difficulties, circumstances, we have a God who knows all about it. He's there with us. We sang that song. He's been there with us along the way, 50 years by his grace. He knows the issues of our life. He knows the daily battles that we face. He knows everything about us because he's there with us. That's what he knew about the Christians at Pergamum. Pergamum is a very interesting place. It gets its name from a very interesting fact that it is derived from the root word of parchment. Isn't that interesting? Parchment. For it was here first that Books were recorded and information recorded on parchment, leather skins. So when you think of Pergamon, think of parchment. Oh, yeah, that's the place where they had a library. As a matter of fact, they had 200,000 volumes of parchment there. Anthony thought so much of this great body of knowledge, he gave it to Cleopatra. Maybe they had a, a brawl or something. And uh, so he made up to her by giving her 200 volumes from this library. To Cleopatra but I want you to notice something if we were to fly over to the Middle East and there work our way up north we would come to what's known as Asia Minor and there would be Pergamum we go first to Ephesus then we go to Smyrna now we have arrived at Pergamum and I want you to see what it would look like if we were to arrive there approaching Pergamum even today this is what it would be like now it looks like a a pile of rocks Actually, Pergamum was destroyed some years ago by an earthquake. But as you approach it, it was on a 1,000-foot-high hill, and there it was a glorious sight. It could be seen, they they say, 15 miles away. That's quite a city. It's a glorious sight of art, culture. It was also a seedbed of idolatrous worship. It was a place where every single day all the citizens of Pergamum, excluding, however, some Christians, would bow down and worship the Caesars of the day. They took incense, they placed it before the altar, and there indeed they were worshiping their God. Obviously, it was a place of pagan worship. But I want you to see a model of the place of what it probably looked like back in those days. If you look to the left side of the screen, you'll see that there is the, uh, the place called the Temple of Dionysius. Dionysius was the, the god of plants, and the fertile, fertile god, who's also called a, shall we call, call him, a savior god. Worship Dionysus. You can also see that there's a god there of simply at the top of the, of the picture, uh, Athena. The goddess Athena was the, the goddess of victory battles. You pray to this god, you go to battle, hopefully she helps you win the battle. There's also another god called the god of Aeschylus. Aeschylus is not here. Aeschylus was a place that you went if you had an illness or a problem physically. They would place you in a very dark room, no light coming in. You would lie down, and if snakes were to crawl over you, you were going to be healed by that God. I've often thought, that wouldn't be my problem. I would have a heart attack in the midst of that. Can you imagine snakes crawling over you in total darkness? But they worshiped that God. But there was another temple there. This was a temple, and you can see it as, on on the very center of there, it was a temple of Zeus. Zeus was a very interesting God. God, Zeus, was the, the greatest God. He was a chief honcho of gods, and he is the reference that is mentioned in Scripture of Satan and his throne. There's another picture here that very vividly talks about Satan and the god of Zeus. Notice what it looks like. You see, in the year 1864, a man by the name of Carl Heumann, who was a German, came back to this place. Seeing the ruins, he uncovered what was known as the Altar of Zeus or the Altar of Satan. He reconstructed it as he took it back to Germany. And there, this 40-foot high structure was revealed for all to see what it was like. In 1930, Adolf Hitler came into power in Germany. He took his architect, we might say his chief architect, he had many. His name was Spear, Albert Spear. He said to Mr. Spear, I want you to look at this altar and I want you to come up with a a major throne platform for me. I would like for you to create the Zebulun tribute for me and there I will gather over one million people together and I will make pronouncements to them. So Speer made somewhat of a replica of that for Hitler to speak on. There, night after night, and he always spoke at night with torches lighting the way, Adolf Hitler talked about the Holocaust. He talked about butchering and killing the Jews. Six million Jews faced the Holocaust. If you take in the other countries where his his brutality was faced, some say between 14 and 16 million people died because of Adolf Hitler and what he pronounced from, shall we call it, Satan's altar. What a sad story in world history. After World War II, Albert Speer said this about Adolf Hitler. It's hard to recognize Satan when he has his hand on your shoulder. It's hard to recognize Satan when he has his hand on your shoulder. Well, the people of Pergamum, they face that on a daily basis. They face the issues of living in a society that worship Satan through this idolatrous form of of temple worship They were involved in one way or another, times of great trial. It brought on great persecution. Not only was there the the altar there to worship Satan, but also the persecution was for those who did not worship. The scripture tells us that there was a man by the name of Antipas. He was the, the bishop of the church. And this bishop refused in 92 A.D. to bow down and worship Caesar. And so they took him before the throne. And then there was, as a part of the throne, there was a large brazen bull. If any of you have ever been to Wall Street, there where the stock exchange is, there's a huge bull. It's there as a, a symbol of good luck that there would be a bull market, not a bear market. And this, this bull is there, solid brass, very similar to what they had there at the altar of Satan. They would open up this altar. It was hollow inside, or this brass bull. It was empty inside. They placed Antipas inside. They then build this huge fire underneath. And there were holes in the top of the brass animal there and you could hear the cries and the shrieks of Antipas who was dying inside. Every day the Christians had to face that threat because unless they bowed down to worship the Caesars, they likewise could end up inside that brazen bull. Those were the issues facing them. But The Lord Jesus Christ says, I see where you are. I see Satan's altar. I see the challenges and persecutions you're facing. But guess what? I understand this. You have kept true faith in Jesus Christ. Because this was a place where Jesus Christ's name was honored and glorified, and people kept faith in the Savior. You know, we read many times in Scripture that the name of Jesus Christ is precious. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In Colossians 3 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything which is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. Unto the name of the Lord. In Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that is our Savior, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this morning, do you treasure his name? If you've never trusted him as your personal Savior, He is the one who died for you. He is the one who can give you new life here and eternity later. But he is a wonderful Savior who took upon himself our sins and died upon the cross. And in the power of the resurrection, we have life in him. We also know this, that not only were believers there trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and their faith was undeniable. But thirdly, they had some problems. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I would like to point out a few issues in your life. And there were two things, two things that Jesus Christ was concerned about. First and foremost was the issue of the Balaamites. They were the problem of the Balaamites, the teachings of Balaam. Balaam goes back to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you go to Deuteronomy's chapters 22 through 25, and it's the issue of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet who, seeking honor and money, uh, was brought in by the king of Moab, Balaam, Balak, and Balak wanted to destroy the Jews as they were making their wilderness wanderings up to the Promised Land, and so. Balaam was given the charge. Curse those Israelites. Three times Balaam tried to do it. Three times he failed. Why? God had a covenant to protect the nation Israel. He couldn't wipe it out. But Balaam had another idea. This idea was very interesting. He said to the king, why don't you take your women and entice the men of Israel into the idolatrous feasts and festivals that we have, intermarry with them, and then also through sexual immorality you will gain sway over them. This time it worked. Through sexual immorality, through the idolatrous worship of the Moabites, 24,000 men were killed out of God's anger upon what they had done. Now, for the believers in Pergamum, there were those who simply followed those ways. They simply said, it's okay to dabble in idolatrous worship because that's the the culture of the day. It's okay to have love, love, with a woman who's your wife, but you are free to do love with other women as well. So immorality tied in with the idolatrous system was very destructive within the church. But there was also the teachings of another group of individuals in the church. This was the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans was a group that uh, really took license to do anything that they please. They said, we are no longer bound by the Old Testament. We live by grace. We can live free lives. We can do as we please. As a matter of fact, we have a license to live in any direction we want to go. And therefore, what is wrong in having not only a wife to raise our children, We can also live very immoralized, like all of those around us who are tied into this idolatrous worship. And so, the Nicolaitans were very much a part of the culture of the church, not pulling away from the idolatrous and immorality of the culture around them. You know, it's very interesting. Balaam comes from a Hebrew word, two words that simply mean this to conquer people. Nicolaitan is a New Testament word. It's a Greek word. You know what it means? Conquer people. Satan has his plan. Through following the idolatrous worship of the day, whatever it may be, for Americans and people mostly around the world, it's materialism of the day. For those of us who follow the the latest culture, the thing to get more for ourselves, we're simply following the teachings of a of a Balaam or the Nicolaitans. Gather simply things for ourselves. I was speaking in a church in South Korea some years ago. It was there were fifty thousand people there, seven thousand each service. And gather, gathered there after the service, there were many pastors, and I asked them the question. I says, what is the greatest threat to the churches of South Korea? This is what they said. Growing materialism. We have to have things for ourselves. And our children, that's all they want, is a growing materialism. That's the greatest threat. A great threat to our church in America as well. But it's very interesting. That although these teachings were there, there is a warning of disobedience. And Christ says, I can come, I can come at any moment with a, with a knife, the sword of destruction. And this was a small knife, or the small hand that you would use in assassinating a person. He says, I can come if you're still disobedient, I can literally bring judgment upon you but also the Lord Jesus Christ is very careful when he said I must tell you this that there are some rewards available for you if you will follow me if you will continue to obey me i can assure you there's a need and there are also rewards for you if you will simply repent now in the first message to Ephesus uh Jamie very carefully said, the church at Ephesus needed to repent. Repentance is moving from one direction and going in that direction the wrong way, turning around and going back the opposite direction. That's repentance. But you know, repentance comes when first and foremost, we see ourselves as we are in the direction we're going and we realize we're not going God's way. And suddenly we see the awesomeness of our Lord, his mighty power and all that he provides us. And we are humble. And in the midst of humbling ourselves and repenting, we turn and move in his direction. That's the big challenge of our day, isn't it? Allowing ourselves to become smaller and smaller and allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to become larger and larger in our life. Some years ago, I came upon a book entitled The New Rules. Ron Yankelevich was a sociologist. And he said in his study that in the 1940s and 50s in America, we have people who were giving of self. You know, 16,000 men and women were involved in World War II. They gave of themselves to stop a Hitler. But he said in the 1960s, it was self-love. Remember the hippies? Self-love. And then from the 80s on, it was a growing, what he called radical self-interest. Radical self-interest. What is in it for me? What can I get out of it? As one said this, I am no longer interested in anything that does not involve my name. Interesting, isn't it? Radical self-interests. I would preached uh, on Sunday three sermons one week at Scottsdale Bible Church. Midway through the morning, I received a telephone call from a very upset mother of a teenager who was attending Scottsdale Bible Church, and that teen had come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But this mother was not a believer in Christ, But she told me a very disturbing thing. She said, you know, my daughter, now that she's a Christian, claims that she has found the truth, and the truth has set her free. And she said, she comes in any time of of night that she wants to. She doesn't clean up her room. She goes, anyway, she's really in control of her life. I can't control her. And it's all because of your church. Oh, that was a tough situation. I'm happy to report the mother did come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was the problem of the first century church. People saying, I'm free to do as I please. I can get involved in those issues around me. I am free to do as I direct." Nothing could be further from the truth. But the Lord Jesus Christ does say this, there are great rewards... If you do repent. They're great rewards. He says, first and foremost, I am the bread of life for you. I will give you the hidden manna. And for Israel, as they were on their journeys across the wilderness, they received daily hidden manna. not something they earn or achieve. It was something God just simply gave them to sustain them. God's saying the same thing for you if you'll repent, if you'll follow me, if you'll be in my direction, guess what? I'm going to give you bread, sustain you. Someday you'll you'll be at my great feast in heaven. We'll celebrate together. He said, secondly, I'm going to give you another thing. It's going to be a white stone, and this white stone is going to have your name on it. It's not going to be The name that you have now is going to be a special name, a different kind of a name. It's it's a name, for example, a husband gives his, his bride. He no longer calls her Mary or Jane or Beulah, or he just simply says, you're now my honey. You're now my dear. You see, Jesus Christ has a special name of affection for all of us who continue to place their faith and trust in Christ and follow his ways. And someday we'll be gathered together with him. What is this stone? Well, in the Olympic Games of the day, they gave a stone, a white stone, to the winner. And the winner's name was on it. And that stone got you into the great feast and celebration of the winner's circle. Guess what? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. We'll be given not only man along the way, but he's going to give us the victor's stone as we follow him. You know, some time ago there was a, a man who was born in England and he came to the United States. He was a man who went to Moody Bible Institute. His name was Arthur Pink. Some of you have read his commentaries on Bible passages. But Arthur Pink spent two months at Moody Bible Institute and said, I'm ready to now become a pastor. That was quite a training for him. He became a pastor in Colorado. He went to California. He was in England. He was all over, even Australia, a great pastor. But he said this about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, ultimately, The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelists. That is, the evangelists announce a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. Very interesting statement. Yeah, it's great to be delivered from the the threat of hell. I should say the reality of hell. But what about our own carnality and worldliness? That was the message to the church at Pergamum. You know, I've come up over the years with a definition of spiritual maturity. Listen and read what it says. Spiritual maturity is not merely the ability to hear God's voice, that is, from picking up the Bible, which is the Word of God, or from a counselor or helper or another person in Christ. You know what it is? It is courageously cultivating the ability to execute God's intentions in one's life. You know, I'm tired of talking to people who simply say this, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I know what God wants me to do. I'm fully aware of what God wants me to do. I've heard it. I've listened to it. But I'm not going to do it. You see, God wants us to carry out boldly and courageously his intentions for our life. On occasion, Jim Bohr and I have gotten together over the last uh, 40 years. Believe me, we, we never dreamed that Scottsdale Bible Church would become all that it has become. But oftentimes, we would talk about our own issues and problems in life. And Jim had just, not too long before that, had a very difficult time with his wife, Norma. Norma was going through an illness, and unless surgery would help her, uh, she probably would have died. But in the midst of our conversation, I turned to Jim. I said, Jim, what what would you do if Norma were to die? Suddenly he was silent, and Jim is not often silent. And then he thought, and then he spoke. He said, Cheryl, said, sure, I... I think this is what I would do if the Lord would take Norma home. He said, I believe I would try to find the poorest, most difficult area of, of Los Angeles. I'd move into there. I would try to help those people in the midst of their problems and difficulties, and I would focus upon trying to lead them to Christ in the midst of their horrible circumstances. Then I said, Jim. That's James chapter 1. James chapter 1 starts off by saying, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing this that the testing of your faith works patience but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire lacking nothing. In other words, God has taken us through persecutions, trials, difficulties. Why? To mature us in Christ. And then I thought of the last verse of the chapter. And James concludes by saying this. Pure religion, by the way, it means be in a right relationship with God and the issues around you. Pure religion and right before God is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And secondly, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. In other words, trust God with your difficulties, your problems, your issues, go and help people in their dismal circumstances, whatever their problems may be, and guess what? Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Because as in the days of Pergamum, we have our own issues in the United States, even in Scottsdale that's trying to distract you from a complete, full, total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan always has his plan. Christ wants you. Shall we pray? Father, we are all parts of your body. But we do know this, even at Scottsdale Bible Church. The sum is a total of all its parts. And so we're all significant, no matter how large we are when we gather here. We are all in an individual relationship with you. And Lord, by your grace and your power and the Spirit of God, cause us to strip off anything that's keeping us to be totally owned and directed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.